to speak on this morning, if we're getting more or less back together, is a a one-off at the beginning of our week of prayer, in the beginning of the year, uh, a, a word that I felt God spoke to me about. I have to say that over a year ago, Angela Vane gave me a prophetic sort of word which referred to this passage, Exodus 23. And uh, I had already had my attention drawn to it before. Historically, it's a passage that God has spoken to me out of before. But um, I heeded what Angela gave, but it just went into my, not, not, not by any means ignored, but I do have a, a prophecy sort of file and I, and I look at things and keep them and meditate on them, some of them for quite a while really. And just as we were beginning this year, I was tussling with what to preach today and for this week of prayer and really more, what was God saying to me and saying to us. And uh, I found God taking me back to to Exodus 23 several times. And uh, in the end, I felt that's where I needed to settle. And so I began to meditate on it and I felt God highlighted three major verses in that, this passage, which are the three that are on those notes. And uh, I believe there are principles here that are general, general principles, but I believe God wants to also apply them particularly to us as a church, uh, Winchester Family Church. So even if you're a visitor, I hope it's not irrelevant to you, but it is very much also an application to us. I trust it won't be irrelevant to any of us. Winchester Family Church is not a static church. It is a church on the move, a church battling to go somewhere. When we moved out of this building to go to the Guildhall for nine months, I remember speaking to you on a people on the move, and some of that still is there. We've got a, over in that corner is one of our posters that we had made at that time, a people on the move, and we talked about that. And we drew on Israel's experience under Moses uh, in the wilderness But at the beginning of this year, I felt God drawing me back to something from that setting, from that historical period, and this is it, to speak to us now. And uh, I want you to listen as we read it, and then I'll hope, with God's help, to be able to apply it to our lives. So, Exodus 23 and verse 20. This is God's word to Moses and the people at that time of moving out. They're way out of Egypt now. They're moving on through as God's covenant people on a, on a journey to Cana. Verse 20. <clears throat> See, this is the Lord speaking. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says... And do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hevites and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sicknesses from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. 
I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hevites, Canaanites and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. I believe this is a passage for us now, but I believe it has some universal principles as well. I want to talk on those three uh, titles or subtitles, Covenant Promises, Conditional Blessings, Conflict Inevitable. And I want to talk, first of all, about Covenant Promises. Because this is, in the words of Alec Mottier, his commentary on this, a classical statement of the fundamental covenant situation. This is a classical statement of how God deals with men and women in covenant. It really is. I've done a series on covenants here and I'm obviously not going to explore it at length. But commentators are agreed that this is a classic. Another commentator called it a theme that runs right through the Old Testament. A way of understanding God and his dealings with his people. Just to highlight a few of the things that are features of God's covenant from beginning to end, right from Adam and Eve who had a covenant with God. Noah, Abraham, Moses with the great Mosaic covenant, the overarching covenant of law which goes through, overarches the, New, the Old Testament. But also, David had a covenant with God. There are other aspects of God's covenantal dealings with men and women that come out again and again in the Bible. And we have a covenant with God, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Actually, you can argue that history is actually fashioned and formed by God's covenantal eras. It's not about dispensations or or, or other things, but the eras of God's covenantal dealings have changed. There's been a development through the, the, the eons. And actually, we now stand at the climax of the ages with the new covenant which in in many ways has been looked forward to all the way. Every one of the previous ones, Abraham, Moses, David, they were mighty things for them to enjoy, but they looked forward and, and had prophetic elements to what we're in with Jesus Christ. But there are common patterns to all God's covenants. I'm not going to go through them all, but here are some of the big ones. The whole thing focuses around God's actions and God's initiative. God initiates these covenants. He speaks from heaven and says, I'm going to do this for you. They, they have sovereignly given divine promises. And the ultimate fulfilment of those promises is absolutely guaranteed because God has said he will do it. And what God has promised, he will do. There are many other aspects to them. God's covenants have always been holistic God is interested in the physical well-being of his people. You'll find that with Abraham, you'll find it with Moses, and I believe it is true of the new covenant as well. Here we see it in around verses 25 and 26, that God says, as you walk with me and worship me, I will look after you. Basically, there is prosperity here. Let's not be frightened of that word. I will look after you physically. I will provide food for you. I will provide drink for you. I will heal you. I will preserve your life. 
There are physical blessings in God's covenant. Now, this revelation is reinforced in Jesus Christ. It's not that we've got no physical blessings in the new covenant. Far from it. When Jesus was on earth, he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Healing was a significant part of Jesus' ministry. Deliverance from demonic oppression was another major part. And he told his disciples to lay hands on the sick. He told his disciples to expect demons to come out when when they used the authority of his name. The new covenant is definitely also about healing and provision. Your heavenly father knows your needs. Don't be anxious. Put your faith in him. Look for God's provision. Don't look to the world. Don't look to yourself, but look to God. The Lord is your provider, is an element of all God's covenant dealings and still applies to us. Another important element of God's general covenant promises is that his presence will be with his people. What's called the Emmanuel Principle. And Jesus is the supreme Emmanuel, God with us. He is the fulfilment of all the things that were seen in part in previous covenants. And this is fascinating with regard to this particular passage. Because this passage is about God's presence with them. Verses 20 to 22 refer to this rather mysterious figure, an angel that I am sending. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Don't rebel against him. Now, This angel is no ordinary angel. This one that we're reading about in Exodus 23. The expressions used of this um, being are far too high for it to be just like one of the ordinary angels. Actually, this angel is identified with God himself. Look at the phrase in verse uh, 21. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion. That seems beyond the, the, the remit of angels, but this one particularly. Since my name is in him. This angel carries the name of God, the essential nature and power of God are in this angel. This angel is called in elsewhere in the Old Testament, the angel of God's presence. The angel of his presence, Isaiah 63:19. There was reference back. This was God manifest amongst them. And actually, this can be considered a pre-incarnation evidence of the second person of the Trinity. This is a pre-incarnation. This, if you like, is before Jesus of Nazareth. It's the Son present amongst his people. It's God amongst his people. There was an actual presence there. God said, I am with you. My name is in him. This mysterious figure who is a bit cloudy to the old covenant. But in the new covenant, we have Jesus Christ on earth incarnate, died and risen again. And as a result of that, we have the Holy Spirit with us. And in this Old Testament setting, God says, obeying him, the angel of my presence, is the same as obeying me. And in the New Covenant, God says, obeying Jesus Christ is the same as obeying me. Obedience to Jesus Christ is obedience to God. Now, these covenantal principles which fascinate and stir my heart are are interesting and and profound, but I actually believe that they reflect something that can be true on a smaller scale for us and for God's people, and particularly for us here in Winchester Family Church. And I believe God wants us to, to get some principles out of this. First of all, I believe God has taken an initiative with us, literally us, and spoken things to us as a church. It's the way God will deal with his people. I don't think we planned the journey we're on. I don't think this church, before my time, I hasten to add, quite planned how God led them, clearly led them to buy this property. 
and to still have Stanmore Lane, which through circumstances is sort of how it is through a number of things. I don't think where we are today with me leading the church, Greg gone to Westminster Chapel, is is, is just human planning. It's a work of God. The Holy Spirit has led us. I would say to you as a church, not just as a leader, but as part of what you are and part of what we are, I've been there from the beginning, I would say God has started us on a journey. I mean it. God has started us on a journey. And in the words of verse 20, which is why I've put them on the notes, he is taking us to a place he has prepared for us. God says, I'm going to guard you along the way and I am going to get you to where I want you to be. And I believe God is going to do that with us, Winchester Family Church. That he has got a plan which he has already started, as he had it this time in Exodus 23. They're on the way. God said, I've already got you this far. I've guarded you and guided you this far. And I have a place prepared for you where I'm going to take you. Now, even that phrase, to the place I have prepared, is fascinating in itself. It is an unusual phrase, and all commentators agree that it carries a sense of a spiritual destination as well as a physical destination. Now, that's important for Israel, and it's important for Winchester Family Church. And I'll try and explain why. I believe God's been speaking to me out of it. Just to say, the reason the commentators would say that is that it carries a certain resonance through the Bible. For example, holy place comes to mind. God was going to establish in Cana a place where men and women from across the nations could meet God. The tabernacle, the temple, was meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. Israel was meant to be an evangelistic people. They were meant to be a taste of the kingdom of God on heaven. Of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth. A taste of heaven on earth. They were meant to be a place where the nations could come and see how God operated. They were meant to demonstrate God's ways work. They are totally different from the ways of the world. And, and, and they were to be evangelistic. Cana was to be the dwelling place of God on earth. It was not merely a geographical location. It wasn't merely about a particular small ethnic people having their own land and being able to plant their own vegetables and grow them and all the things that they did do and that were a blessing. But it was meant to be much more than that. The place God had prepared was a place of his presence and dwelling, a place where men and women could come to know him. It echoes, the phraseology of this verse echoes John 14, 2-3, where Jesus said to his disciples, to us, I am going to prepare a place for you. There's a sense in which God says, I have a place I want to take my people to. God has a journey he starts us on. Our lives, individually and corporately, are not just some random thing that you make little decisions and wonder about what you do. God has purposes and plans. He always is like this. The whole of Christianity resonates with this. The Bible resonates. That God has purpose for his people. We are in a linear experience with God. We're not going around in circles. God is taking us somewhere to a place he's prepared Now, I believe for us, it has this depth of meaning. God did not just have a physical place in mind, the NBC Centre. It does have physical. It's very clear that God has led us here. Uh, You know, the purchase of this place 11 years ago, miraculous. 
The provision of the car park sale, two, nearly two, 18 months, two years ago, miraculous. I would say many other things that you are tangible. The way God has led me to come here, I can see God's miraculous hand in it, and I thank him for it. But I see that God has got something more in mind than just a physical building, and even just a bunch of people in the building. Just a crowd of people in a physically large building. God has led us together for something more. And I don't think, by the way, it is just about me being... I've referred to myself, because I'm talking to myself... uh, Talking to myself, I'm talking to you, I hope. I'm talking about myself. um, But I'm not talking only because I'm leading it. I believe Marion and I were led here to belong to Winchester Family Church for such a time as this. Now, I believe you will have and should have a similar attitude and will have a similar experience. You are not here just in passing, just by chance. Oh, well, I'm here for a year or two because of my job. I believe God has got you here for such a time as this. You must believe that. You must believe, because it's true, that when it all shuffles down, people come and go. We have people go off and feel they have called to do other things. Spiritually things, spiritual things, got honourable things sometimes. Other people don't feel that. They feel called to stay here and so on and so forth. We planted Life Church Southampton, which I believe is part of our call to double and double again. And part of doubling and doubling again is to plant churches and see them flourish. And that church is flourishing. It's part of us flourishing. It's part of our ministry flourishing. But most everybody in this room didn't feel called to that. They felt called to stay here. And therefore you are part of what God is doing, taking us to a place he's prepared for us. You may have come and you will have come through various complicated paths, some of you painful paths to be here. Please do not think of yourself as just filling a seat in a large building because that is not the place God wants to take us to. Growth is part of God's plan, but it's a lot more than that. We are meant to demonstrate something. We're meant to demonstrate church life as God wants it to be. I don't think we're there yet. We're meant to demonstrate a word and spirit church. I think we're trying to get there. A church where the word of God is fundamental. The Bible is preached unashamedly and not always in just little snippets that attract the attention of the idle or the superficial. More substantially than that. But also we are a people of the spirit and We want that all week, by the way, with this prayer uh, week. Please come, prepare to be a people of the Spirit. We need prophetic words. I'm crying out for prophetic words. I'm asking God for them. We need people to come and exercise the gifts of the Spirit. We need to be flexible and, and open to the Holy Spirit's power and influence. We need to see the gifts operating. We need to see miracles and healings. We, we fought battles for these things and we believe in them. And I don't want charismatic to mean we've settled down to just have some new songs and a little bit more uh, uh, lively worship. We're actually people of the spirit, word and spirit. We are a demonstration of restored church life. God has done something in churches in the United Kingdom in the last 30 years. We are a product of that, but there's a great danger that we all just, all of us and all of churches generally, just accept it and jog along. God had purposes. Restoration is about body ministry. It's about gifts of the Spirit. It's about a different feel to church. And it's about revival. It's about reaching the nation and seeing the nation changed. We are to be outward looking. 
We've had many things God spoke to us about. It's not about merely growing. God spoke to us about worship being a key factor. We are to be a centre of worship. We're to dig wells of worship. Our worship is to be Holy Spirit inspired and inspiring. It's hard work sometimes. We're digging wells. But one of the places God's prepared for us is a place of gushing wells of worship. Amen? We're working on it. But it's a job in progress. We are called to be an Antioch-based church. What does that mean? We've heard many times, but in simple terms, it means that we're a church that serves and influences far wider than our immediate geography. We serve the nations. We've just appointed an elder a significant amount of his time, by no means the majority, but a significant minority, will probably be overseas, serving us and extending our ministry into India, particularly in Nepal and elsewhere. We do, as a church, have the resources to serve others, to serve Wessex, I do that, to serve uh, others in the city, and uh, we are a resource base, we are an Antioch base. We believe God has called us to that. A couple of things came to mind when when Guy was talking to me the other day about Winchester. He said, this church has already blessed thousands of people over the years. He's right. This church has resourced and sent out leaders and sent out people trained all over the place. Another thing Guy said is, there are not many churches like Winchester Family Church in New Frontiers. And he meant that obviously in a very honourable way. There are not many like us. We are a sort of special brand. I'm not just puffing you up. God's called us to it. It's a place God's got for us. To be an Antioch base. To be a place of worship. We've had revival uh, prophesied. We've had prophecies about touching the educational establishments, the universities here. It's hard work, but it's one of the places God wants to take us to. Not just that we have a, a sort of shuffling pack of students that occasionally come and have a nice time for a while and have a couple of, you know, chili con carne dinners and go off to the next church. But that, that somehow we put something into young lives and their whole lives are changed because they spent three years as part of Winchester Family Church. That's what I want. I want people's whole lives changed, ruined in the best possible way. Because God speaks them, calls them to the nations, calls them to stay here and be something here. We've got leaders of our own church who came as as students. uh, Dave Lockyer, Chris Kilby and others and and, and significant people too. That don't just refer to the elders, but there's all through the church. Rose and Tash, and Ange, and you come, where, where does the list stop? People, you guys, Andy and Grace Foster, you know, you could just use any, Rob and Nell, you could, where's the list stop? People who originally came here as students and are now significant pillars in the church. That is an ongoing part of what we're called to be. Do you understand? Amen. I mean, I could, I'm not, don't be offended if I haven't mentioned you, because as I look around the room, I can see hundreds of people I could mention in this sort of category who started off, and God's done a lot more with you than just coming here for a few years as you were studying. God is after a, still more though, we are, we're not really touching the educational establishments at all at the moment. God is, God is after a quality as well as a quantity of church life. That is what this place prepared is. A church that's healthy and holistic, vibrant, serving the community, welcoming. We've worked on that. We've still got work to do. A church that serves the community, is missional. This is the place God's got for us. Where the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, is evident everywhere whenever you meet anyone from the church. 
God has told us he's got plans for us. And we are not yet where God wants us to be. He's taken us so far, some amazing things have happened. But there's a lot further to go. And some of the work is not just physical. It's easy and quantifiable to, to give to a building, but it's, it's, to, it's to change your thinking. It's to, to get involved in it and to understand that the terms pastor and elder might, might not mean what you thought they did ten years ago, that, you know, there's a pastor and he, he looks after me. And all these things are part of change as you grow. Small groups are vital and they need to be holistic small groups. I could go on and I'm in danger of doing so because that's not my main... It's just to flag it up. But I want to go on to the next point. God's promised all sorts of things to us, but conditional blessings. There is an if in verse 22, which is a very important one. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, says God, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. Here is an interesting challenge to get your head round, because it's true of all God's covenants. All God's covenants are grace covenants. We don't earn God's blessings. They are sovereign initiatives of heaven. And yet, enjoying the blessings has a conditional element. There is a conditional element. The condition of faith and obedience. We need to think that through. I haven't time to explore it at great length. But it's true throughout the Bible. It is the obedience of faith that lines us up with God's expressed will and therefore brings us into the blessings he's promised. That's a summary of what happens. The obedience of faith, not just law or anything like that. The obedience of faith. We believe what God's promised. We believe what he's told us and we begin to line ourselves up with the instructions he gives. And as a result of that, we line ourselves up with where his expressed will is and his blessing is flowing. We don't earn it by being good boys and girls. It's an obedience of faith that lines you up with the express will of God and with the blessings that he has promised. You can see this in the new covenant itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course it's free, totally free grace, wonderful. But it's sort of conditional as well. No one enjoys the new covenant blessings in Jesus Christ if they stay unrepentant and unbelieving. The new covenant does not work for everybody on the planet, only for those who repent and believe, who put faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot enjoy God's salvation or accept God's salvation without accepting God's saviour, Jesus Christ. There is no other name given under uh, um, across the planet by which we can be saved. God has offered salvation, but it has a condition. Think of John Chapter 1, verse 12, it says, It is all who received him, that's Jesus Christ, and who believed in his name, to those he gave the right to become children of God. So people have become children of God, not because they're good or they earn it or they're special people, but because they receive what God has said from heaven. They believe it and obey it. So they receive Jesus as Saviour, they believe in his name, and they find that everything God's promised comes true in their lives. Now, that is how God operates. There are conditions of faith to his blessings, conditions of obedience. We are to listen carefully to what he says and do what he says. God is transcendent, that is other, but he's also imminent. That's exactly what these people experienced, Israel. That the mighty God said, I'm actually with you 
and I'm watching you to see you take notice of what I say. That's why you get this strange, almost mixture between if you listen to the angel and do all I say, well, the angel is God amongst them. He's God imminent, like the Holy Spirit is with us. So as a people, we have to obey what God says to us if we're going to enjoy the blessings he wants us to have. God is quite capable of waiting through a whole generation and trying again. He did it with Israel. I don't want him to do it with me. I don't want a whole other generation to go through before we become what God wants us to become and we impact the culture the way God wants us to impact the culture. I'm speaking of us, but I'm also speaking of the church in the UK because I believe we are part of a bigger thing as well. God wants to do more than he has yet done with the church in the UK. We need to see the church rise up as spirit-filled, Bible-believing, aggressively evangelistic people who impact our culture like we haven't done for a generation. I honestly believe that's what God wants. And I think to do it, it's like a war. You can only do your bit. You may have a sense of the whole war, but if you're captaining a sort of battleship or something, you have to make sure your battleship does its bit to the best. We've got one battleship. We've got to find what our orders are, and we've got to do our bit to the very best and complete our orders and complete our mission. And at the same time, trust that the general God is ordering the rest of the fleet to do their work as well. So we have a sort of double thing in our minds. We're part of a bigger thing God's doing, but we're one part of it. And we must do properly what God calls us to do. That means, brothers and sisters, every last one of you, we must take heed to what God told us to do. If he tells us to dig wells of worship, worship's important for all of us. Not just for the worship band or the leader. If he tells us to pray, which he has, prayer is important for all of us. If he tells us to build a quality of church life, which I believe God has done, talking through myself, but I believe God spoke to us about a climate for growth, that we should be welcoming to strangers, that we should be hospitable, that we should give generously, that we should uh, share openly, and be outward looking, sharing our faith, that we are to be a serving church, that we are to be filled with the Spirit, and that we're to have an eye on the nations, and that we are to see holistic small groups as a vital part of our church life. Now, all of that, just quickly flagged up, that is for all of us. That's not for half a dozen people to do. We cannot do it if we don't all line up with it. Those words have got to be heeded and obeyed by all of us. We've got to pay attention, listen carefully and obey. And the obedience of faith means more than that. It means lining our lives up with the word of God. Not just the now words, which are important, but the word of God, which means living righteously. And I want to refer to our strap line, which we got used to, which we ought to know, something different. Brothers and sisters, that was not about just an upright idea. In my heart and mind, it is about us being different from the world. It is about us being, like Israel was supposed to be, a declaration of something different in a sin-sick world. Amen? That's what God's called us to be. To brightly shine, live as children of light in a dark generation. Here, in Exodus 23, they were very clearly told, particularly verse 24, but several verses, they were very clearly told not to worship the gods of the people around them and not to follow their practices. 
They were called to be something different, and so are we. We are called to be something different. Different from the world. It's not about style or format, this something different thing. It's about what we practice and what we do, what we worship. We are called, every one of us, to be incarnational. That people meet Jesus when they meet us. Every one of us is called to that. To be a little Jesus that people meet, a little Christ. One of the anointed ones, the body of Christ. It is really sadly possible to be something very much the same, isn't it? I mean, we could have a strap line, sad, ironic, sarcastic, something very much the same. It's possible for our lives to be like that, to be like everybody else in Winchester. They're all quite nice, we're quite nice. You know, they're all quite tidy, we're quite tidy. You know, we can be something very much... We are called to be different, which doesn't mean to be untidy. (laughs) It means to be radically reflecting Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be, radically reflecting Jesus. It's actually quite hard in Winchester because they are all quite nice and because it has actually got a lot of Christian heritage and it's got about 1,050 churches. I don't know how many it's got. It's a ridiculous place in that sense. They're everywhere. The whacking great one in the middle called the cathedral. And it... And actually, we're not deliberately trying to be different, say, oh, well, we, you know, we use electric guitars. We're actually saying, not necessarily to them, to the world, it is something different to be a believer. To be a Christian, we don't practice what you practice, and we don't worship what you worship. This is not a difference of external oddness. A generation ago, that would have been actually thought the right thing to do. Not quite like that, but almost. Separation from the world meant... If the world does it, Christians don't do it. And frankly, that was almost a policy. If the world likes art, Christians don't like art. If the world goes to the cinema, Christians don't go to the cinema. If the world does it, Christians don't do it. Now, it's not really about an isolationist difference. It never has been. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for people who are radically committed to his word and filled with his spirit and are distinctive in their lifestyle. They love when other people hate. They forgive when others don't. They are generous and self-sacrificing. They are ruled by grace, which does mean that they will often not do, not practice what the world practices. Of course they won't. They shouldn't be getting drunk. They won't be binge drinking. They won't be greedily using every penny they've got for their own uh, material benefit. They'll have a different attitude to work and to home and to family. But they are free to enjoy all God's provided. They don't see their distinctiveness as by wearing odd clothes or something. You can say, well, you can talk, but never mind, don't talk about me. But they they actually are different from an internal reason. Do you understand? Amen? Agree? Yes, thank you, Mary. Mary and I agree, anyway. We've talked about it before. So, actually... You have got to see this is an important part of being what God's called us to be. It's not just 500 perfectly ordinary Winchester-type people sitting in a big building singing for an hour on Sunday morning. There is something different about us right through the week, and when you come in, we're different. These people love each other and they love us and they, they, are, they are people who are full of Jesus and they talk about Jesus and they share about Jesus and they don't compromise with the world. Alec Mottier in his superb commentary, which you can clearly see I read and enjoyed, in verse 24 he has an interesting comment which really caught my attention because I wouldn't have understood this without his help. 
When verse 24, he says this about verse 24. All the verbs are second person singular. Now, you see, I could have impressed you and, and pretended I knew that, but God wouldn't let me do that because I hadn't got a clue about that till Alec Mottier told me. All right. But listen to what he says about it. All the verbs are second person singular. This is the important bit. Indicating that the collective action of the community requires the deliberate obedience of the individual. Now, I don't care about the verbs in Hebrew, but if that's what it means, that makes sense to me. Indicating that the collective action of the community requires the deliberate obedience of the individual. We cannot do it without all of us doing it. You can't be a welcoming church because a dozen people put the right T-shirt on and are trained to smile. You've got... I'm sorry, that's not derogatory. My wife's one of them. She smiles very freely. But what... What, what I'm saying to you is, we, of course we do that, because you have to have a front. You have to have a blooming banjo to lead the worship. You need something. But in the end, we don't worship because John's good on his banjo. We don't make sure John is absolutely brilliant, and then that's worship. We have to worship. And we have to welcome. <laughs> and we have to resist the temptation of the world. We have to be something different. Down our road, in our job. It, it's... Whatever it means about the Hebrew, this bit I like. Indicating that the collective action of the community requires the deliberate obedience of the individual. You can't do it as a community. It's obvious, isn't it? It happened with Israel. Sadly, under Joshua, if people didn't do it, it all collapsed. When, um, what's his name, who got chopped? Uh, Achan. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Good to have you with me. Achan. I couldn't remember. Joshua was doing okay, Achan got it wrong, and the whole thing was undermined. And actually, we need to really understand this is a profound thing. We are something different. We are worshipping. We are welcoming. We are serving. We are reaching out to the community around us. Not, oh dear, we've lost Chris, we ought to employ an evangelist then. No, no, we are reaching out. Amen? This is stuff for all of us. Our individual heeding and obeying of God's word is an important part of us getting to the place God has prepared for us. We won't dig wells of worship if we're not worshippers as a company. All worshipping. Okay, let's look at the last one. Conflict inevitable. And I particularly wanted to just highlight that one verse, uh, whatever it is, 30. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I felt God spoke to me about that particular verse and I will bring that at the end of this little section because actually I felt that particularly. But I want to talk about the conflict thing. We are in a battle. We are in a battle. I feel it. We are in a battle. As I frequently have said and so have others, it is not like a battle, it is a battle. There is an enemy There is an important principle that's repeated through this passage. You're going to have to fight. I'm going to have to deal with your enemies, says God. He does promise to deal with them, which is great. But they have got to see that this is a conflict, which is one of the big reasons why they mustn't compromise. It comes out in verses 23 and 24, which we've just looked at, later on, 32 to 33. There's a lot about don't compromise, because if you do, the enemy will get in. It's like you mustn't allow space for the enemy to get in at you. 
I will make one passing reference to this passage because I think to our modern ears, people get uncomfortable with some of the language. God says, I will wipe them out. (laughs) And then he says, do not let them live in your land. People say, wasn't that racism? Ethnic cleansing. I think that's a misunderstanding of the situation. First thing I'd say is it's the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. We do not go around killing people ever. We don't go around with swords or bombs or anything else. We love them and we look to bring them out of darkness into the kingdom of light. We do look to pull down demonic strongholds and we have got a demonic enemy who we want to see completely plastered and ruined. And we want to do him as much damage as possible and we want to see the strongholds in our culture collapse, the demonic strongholds. We have real enemies, but we don't fight flesh and blood. However, even here, it's worth making a comment so that you understand scripture. I, by nature, gifting, I guess, I'm not just a preacher, a teacher. I don't like missing these things out when we're teaching through it. I think you need to understand that the key issue here was that the national identities of these people, the Hittites and the Jebusites and others, the national identity was totally wrapped up with the false religion. Rather like you have today, to be honest, in certain religions. So the national identity was totally wrapped up and their horrible practices, and they were horrible, child sacrifices, grotesque uh, orgies, there were some profane things going on which were part of their religion and their identity. It's a bit of a modern British phenomena that religion is a little private thing you can do on, on a couple of days a week or even a couple of hours. Actually, many a culture, and certainly these cultures, would see their whole religion as part of exactly what they were. God is not actually against personal individual existences. God is not for just wiping out a race because they're a race. That is not what he does. He is for wiping out uh, error and lies and satanic bondage and letting truth come through. And if you read your New Testament carefully, you will find Hittites and Jebusites are still active, even in a very positive way, hundreds of years later. For example, David has Hittites amongst his mighty men. It's a Jebusite in 2 Samuel 24 who gives David the threshing floor where David builds the temple. Because Jebusites and Hittites, some of them became followers of Yahweh, the living God. They weren't killed for being a Hittite. They were over following the Lord God, and they were welcomed. And, and indeed, the one, I can't remember his name, the Jebusite with the uh, threshing floor, is portrayed in a very favourable light in 2 Samuel 24. So it's not a racist thing. It's about foul, anti-God practices that are strictly forbidden, that are bound up in these people. And the whole thing is, you've got to get rid of all that stuff, and you mustn't mix with it. That's really the big message. And it was a bloody war, of course, but we're not in the Old Covenant, we're in the New Covenant. But we still have a battle. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, you will find it teaching us that false religions and false doctrines are the result of deceiving spirits. They are things taught by demons. We cannot be politically correct, brothers and sisters. How can we be politically correct when I actually believe False religions are doctrines of demons. Now, I love the people, but I hate the ideas that hold them bondage. 
That is perfectly possible, that is perfectly biblical, and that is what God does. He can love the sinner and hate the sin. I would love to see every Muslim in Britain own Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. But I think their religion is a doctrine of demons. I would love to see every New Ager embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. But I believe what they believe in is a doctrine of demons. I would love to, and I could go on and on, and I would do if I had time. We are not politically correct. We love people. We don't want to hurt anyone. We want them all to be saved. But I hate the things that hold them in bondage. They are our enemies. (laughs) They are not something you give a cuddle to and say, oh, we could try a little bit of that. It might help our Christianity. Go and jump in a lake. We've got Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, the true and living God, and we mustn't compromise that. We live in a culture that is so pluralistic, so into all this stuff, so into multi-faith and everything goes, anything goes, new age, new atheism as well, evolutionary humanism. Well, it's all doctrines of demons, holding people in blindness and bondage. I think this new atheism that comes through with Dawkins and Pullman and all the others, that's another doctrine of demons. It's not just a clever idea of philosophy. It's a demonic stronghold. Britain is full of them. And we have got to declare the truth of Jesus Christ and our Lord and Saviour. And we've got to be very, very clear. However, we have got to know that the battle is the Lord's. It's not for us. We can't take on every enemy. We can't fight every battle. We can't write on everything that comes to Parliament. What we can do is build a healthy church that preaches the gospel and proclaims the truth. And we can be a church full of three, four, five, six hundred people who are different and full of Jesus and his spirit and displaying his grace to men and women. And here is a challenge and an encouragement as well. God said to them, I will drive them out, but I'll do it little by little. And he said, you won't be able to take it on in one big sweep. I bet Israel were a bit disappointed when they heard that. But there was a wisdom to it. God said, and it's true for us, I am sovereign over my promises. And I will decide how they will be fulfilled. If I give you everything in a year, you won't cope with it. I want you to possess it. I want you to settle on it. I want you to change it. That was the message. Israel, you're not just taking over a bit of territory. You are changing the whole face of the earth. There's going to be a place on the earth, this is the idea, where God's known. Where there's a demonstration of kingdom of God ruling in men and women's lives. Now, that failed because of human failure. But the new covenant is a very different order. Jesus has died and risen. He sent his spirit. We are in a totally privileged position. It's an incredible time to live in, the new covenant. And this is working. But we still need to understand God's strategy. It won't be just whiz-bang. I don't believe it'll be whiz-bang. I believe God is saying to me about us, it will be little by little. It's battle. Take step by step. I want you to really change. I don't want you just to have a a, a lively preacher that gathers 500 people for a couple of years until he moves on, type mentality. I think it's not that. God is changing us. He's changing our church culture, brothers and sisters. The battle, some of them are right in us. 
Some of the strongholds are right in us. In us, leaders. Some of the strongholds are, we've got to change the way we think about ourselves and about how we do our work. We've got to allow things to happen that once upon a time we thought, would that have been right? I'm not talking about moral things, of course. We've got to change things. We've got to allow God to change us little by little because he wants us to substantially possess what he's got. Not just to have a quick flick of success and fill a building for a few years, like a fashion thing. Oh, this is the church everybody goes to. No, no, we're actually changing how we operate. And God's doing it little by little. It's painful sometimes. I can feel the battle in myself. Satan has some footholds in my life. I feel God's testing me out about how I operate and how I behave in myself, where my own securities are, how I handle my own emotions, how I handle my own detachment from some things and not other things. I believe God is doing a substantial work and it won't happen overnight. It'll be little by little because I don't want you... That was the whole sense. You can read it for yourself. I don't want you to just have a flash in the pan thing. You you expand and the wild animals and the enemies are able to come back in because you're too thinly spread. I want you to actually establish your borders. That's the wording here. I want you to actually possess this land. I believe the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But do you know what some of those weapons are? Well, a big one is prayer. We've got to pray this week. Come tonight and pray for us. Come this week and pray for this church. Another weapon or weapons are the gifts of the Spirit. Let's use the gifts of the Spirit this week. We need prophetic words, brothers and sisters. We need help from heaven, encouraging us, directing us. Let's have words of knowledge. Let's have revelations. Let's, if you've got a gift of discerning spirits, come and be ready to share and use it because I'm not sometimes sure whether it's the devil, me or my cheese I ate last night. I'm not sure if I'm in a spiritual warfare, a psychological warfare or a warfare with my waistline. I mean, sometimes, I'm the truth, isn't it? Well, I'm talking a bit freely here, but I, I mean, sometimes I have a bad night. I don't know if it's the devil troubling me or I ate too much too late or I'm just a bit screwed up and nervous. And it could be any and all of them, but I need, we need sometimes discerning of spirits in a wider field than that. That's me and my belly. But you, you know, which is of interest to me, if not to you. But, but we need to know, what, what is it? What are we fighting? Is it eating less, being, having more rest, or is it actually getting out and saying, in Jesus' name, I rebuke you? And, and we need to know that on the bigger field as well. So there's all sorts of gifts of the Spirit that are part of our weaponry to get to where God has prepared a place for us to be. Amen? Well, we could do a lot more, I would. I'm not going to. We need to do it this week. We need to get on with the job of fighting our way, little by little. God says, I'm going to push them out ahead of you. God will deal with the enemy. We've got to obey his word. We've got to believe his promises. And we've got to use the weapons he's given us. They're not swords in our day and age. They're the sword of the Spirit, prayer, gifts of the Spirit, name of Jesus, our unity in prayer. That's an important weapon, our unity in prayer. It's no good if three of us pray and the other 350 don't bother. It's got to be together that we achieve what God has called us to do and fulfil the purpose he's got for us. Amen. Let's worship for a few moments before the children go back. Praise the Lord. Thank you.